Welcome to the St. Emelins podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Cully. And this is a special double bill for June and July, partly because uh, Simon and I are holidaying at points, not together this year, but we will be off and about on our travels. It's that busy time of the year. We've got the changeover in emergency departments in the UK, new doctors arriving, all sorts of exciting stuff happening. The ongoing NHS troubles. Simon, how's your world up in the northern reaches of the UK? It's all right, actually. I'm having a, a great time um, with various different projects. Work itself, actually, in the emergency department, ah, it's so tough at the moment. Um, waiting times are horrendous. I know that's the case all over the place, so I won't go on about it. But we're still trying to do some pretty good research and we're getting um, as much teaching done as we possibly can. And we've still got a, a long and continuous stream of patients um, with critical illness and injury coming through the ED, who I think we're managing fairly well. But uh, yes, the volume is is there, which is a challenge, but still managed to do, I think, I hope, good medicine. I noticed the GMC survey of trainees and trainers came out recently and as uh, slightly inevitably emergency medicine scored high on burnout and the risk of burnout amongst us all, whether we're new or old to this specialty. Have you got any hints and tips about how to get through the next few months? Well, not necessarily the next few months. I think my general thing is one of the reasons why I am possibly in a better mood than some of my colleagues. I have very much have a portfolio career. And what I've discovered and what I believe now is that emergency medicine in its current form in the UK as a consultant, certainly, I think is almost pretty much unsustainable if that's all you do on a full time contract. I think we do need to develop careers where we've got other options and other skills and other abilities, which takes us off that high intensity, volume driven workload and puts us into doing other things. And that to me is a great shame because it wasn't always like that. No, portfolio careers are the way forward. I mean, we've both had one for ages and I think job planning does help. As a trainee, that's less easy, although I do know we're not supposed to call junior doctors junior anymore. I've been reading about all of that, but everyone knows what I mean. Doctors in training. Uh, most of ours, I have to say, are less than full time. And that, that says quite a lot, doesn't it? For me, the, the easiest way to try and cope with it all is to not take on the burden of responsibility for the entire NHS. So I go into work, I look at the patient in front of me and try and do the best I can for them. And then the next one and the next one and some others in between, and then go away hoping that I've done my bit. But that frustration of not being able to put the NHS right can get you down. I agree. Um, always look for the positives. And um, as Liz Crow, who we're about to mention, would say, it's about getting a balance in there. And one of the great worries I do have is that as we get busier and busier, people do less of the things which they enjoy. So because we're busy, we don't do teaching. Because we're busy, we don't do research. Because we're busy, we don't do those other things, which actually for many of us give us a lot of positivity in the workplace. So my appeal is, you know, just because it's busy, do try and find time, be it by job planning or by organisation or with support of your, your clinical leaders to try and ensure that some of the positive things that we do in emergency medicine don't get pushed to the side. That would be my plea. I think it's really important to remember that really, at best, we think our doctors in training see about one patient an hour. So if you take five doctors off for a training session for an hour, that's five patients. That's not a lot when you're thinking about the number behind them. So just it's worth that investment and there's not a big cost. It feels like there is because, you know, you want everybody nose to the grindstone, but actually the investment is there. And Liz would also talk about meaning making and what we get from our job when we go to work and always try and find the positives of Simon said. And we should mention Liz because she has joined the ranks of the PhDs in the St. Emlyn's team. An amazing achievement. Fair play to Liz, um, our expert on well-being, and she's not only written an 80,000-word dissertation, she'll be doing more with us on the podcast, she promises, which is something to look forward to. Uh, Simon, you've been busy on the old air ambulance, a new string to your bow. 
Yeah, so I've been doing basics for a while, but um, I've been very fortunate enough to start now working with Northwest Air Ambulance, which is terrifying for me being a trainee again. Uh, it's quite an interesting experience, but um, lots to learn and some fantastic people to learn from. What I would say, though, um, for locally is it's absolutely fantastic turning up to emergency services scenes and meeting so many people who I've met previously as a consultant in the emergency department. Um, so from people like NWAS, other emergency services at scene and seeing friendly faces, that has made a massive difference. And I know our listeners will be keen to get onto the evidence base of the blog, but just a little shout out to Sweater, a consultant colleague in Kent who very sweetly messaged us to say how much she enjoys listening to the podcast. She's new into her consultant career. Hopefully our witterings have been helpful, but I just want to say thank you for the message. It means a lot to us to know that people are listening and not only listening, finding the podcast enjoyable and useful. So thank you. It really was appreciated. Simon, we should get on to some medicine. Let's think about June's posts. A little bit bare in June, if I'm absolutely honest, but that just reflects how busy we all are, I think. Vitamin C and sepsis. It's rearing its head again. Is it dead now? Is it? Gosh, I don't know. I mean, vitamin C is a really interesting drug. It's been used for so many things. Um, it's been controversial for decades, really. But in terms of the sepsis thing, that really came about when Paul Marek decided to do a basically essentially a before and after study looking at what was called the Marek Protocol, or what was coined as the Marek Protocol, which was um, thiamine, steroids, and vitamin C for the treatment of sepsis. And he came out with some incredible results, suggesting that this basically cured sepsis and nobody died of it. And then there was some really interesting presentation over at uh, Critical Care Reviews, fantastic uh, conference if you ever get to go there, and when he was you know, really quite angry about people not believing him. And that that trial, which was uh, published some years ago now, spawned a number of randomised controlled trials, the latest of which has been published, the Lovett trial in New England Journal of Medicine. And that was a trial of 872 patients with sepsis. And what was really interesting in this is the randomising them to either getting vitamin C or not is actually more people died in the vitamin C group. And we've seen not necessarily that um, result, but we've certainly seen many other trials now, several of which we've talked about on the blog, if you go back and follow our links, and which show that really this, you take what sounds like a good idea, you've done some observational data, and it still seems like a good idea, but then when you actually test it in a clinical trial, it doesn't seem to have an effect. And on this case, might actually have an adverse effect on patients. So is it dead? Almost certainly for the vast, vast majority of people. Um, having said that, there are some diehard people out there who would say that, oh, it's a randomized controlled trial. That's not the right design for this. It is, by the way, but they would say it's not. They'd say, well, you didn't give the full cocktail. You only gave the vitamin C. So therefore, it's not quite right. And he gave it too late. And Marek was always saying that you should give it early. So I suspect there'll be some people out there who um, will want to continue to give it, but I'm not one of them. No, I, I don't think it's hit our sphere at all in Southampton. I mean, I would say that if I feel poorly, I tend to eat a bit more fruit. Uh, but that's about as on as far as I'm taking, I think. I, I do enjoy an orange when I have a cold, uh, but maybe that's not quite as significant as Paul Marek was hoping we'd go for. Uh, the rest of June, we had and some excellent blog posts from Natalie over in the uh, International Conference for Emergency Medicine in Melbourne, so not far from her home in Sydney, and she's done some great posts on there. Were there things you wanted to pick out from Natalie's posts on the Melbourne conference? Yeah, there's a lot of content in there because it's three days worth of content. But there's just a couple of things when I was going through. There's quite a lot in there about global health, which is really interesting, particularly around the COVID pandemic. And you'd expect that in the international conference, wouldn't you? Some really good stuff from people like Lee Wallace, friend of ours, South African now working with who in Geneva, I think. Big impacts of COVID, very variable depending on where you were in the world. But some common themes of big problems with just resource allocation, resource availability, particularly in pre-hospital services, perhaps even more so in some countries than in the hospitals. <laughs> Major problems with policy actually affecting 
the the delivery and the functioning of, a, of healthcare services and now the backlog that we're all left with so really quite interesting big trends fewer injuries during the pandemic i guess we'd expect that with fewer people going out but death rates went up and particularly the survival rates around out of hospital cardiac arrests went down considerably and i guess that's all entirely predictable and understandable but very sad to see and there's some really good stuff from colleagues from the UK, from Priya, from Oxford, um, talking about outcomes for women, both from the perspective of being um, emergency physicians, but also for patients. And again, it's something we've we've championed on the blog many times. And if you look at the outcomes for women or for certain racial groups, they're not as good as they are for white men. We don't for women, for instance, we don't diagnose them with their ACS as well. We don't treat their abdominal pain. We put alternative diagnoses on them, which are you know suggesting that they're um, hysterical or something like that. So there's, and that, you know, that's not just me saying that or her saying that. There's good evidence from good observational trials that say that we can definitely do better there. So something for us all to think about. And there was some really interesting disaster stuff going on. And Duffy talked about the Wakari eruption. This is an eruption just off the coast of New Zealand, a volcanic eruption when there were people actually on the island. Lots and lots of major burns that came off that into a community hospital, which didn't have a huge amount of resources. I think burns major incidents are still something that worry me a lot. We just don't have that big capacity in the UK to deal with a lot of burns. And I don't think it was in her presentation. It may have been. But um, one of the things that was told to me, and this may or may not be true, was that patients post event had a lot of hypocalcemia until they were realized that um, some of the burns were hydrogen fluoride and uh, that lowered calcium. So that was really interesting. But again, not necessarily in that presentation, but it's something that I did heard. I hope that's correct and not wrong. We've heard more about the Beirut disaster. You remember the big explosion at the docks in Beirut from Mariana Helu? That was really interesting about how that damaged not just the port and the area around it, but of course the infrastructure and also the, the staff are involved in that. So really a compound major incident, which is difficult. And then lastly, a couple of things. Rick spoke um, remotely about point of care testing, and that's going to, I think, a trend is going to see lots more point of care testing coming in as the devices and the ability for us to do that gets better. And lastly, Mick Malloy's comment that um, when you talk about clinician burnout, it's a form of institutional abuse. I thought that was quite interesting as a concept because um, clearly our institutions can do better. And he linked over to Peter Safar's Rules for Life, which is on Life in the Fast Lane. And absolutely brilliant. There's loads of really good ones in there if you want to follow those links. So things like perfection is not optional. What's it? No simply means begin again at one level higher. So really interesting sort of like quips there. I think that's probably worth a read. But generally speaking, three days of really interesting education. I'd strongly recommend you having a wander through Natalie's posts. ICM seems to be growing in stature. I know that seems ridiculous, it being the international body. But Theon Davies from Leicester is now the president. So no doubt, hopefully more UK involvement. And we can start to focus a little bit on how we can help with those global medicine crises. And that, of course, will be reflected in CODA. Next, we've got one of those trials that I think many of us will have been part of in a small way. The FORCE study, and this was looking at the immobilization of torus fractures, published in The Lancet. Always great to see emergency medicine trials published in those high-impact journals. A uh, friend of the podcast, friend of St. Eminem's, Damien Rowland, is one of the investigators on there, amongst many other luminaries. And, and this is just perhaps reinforcing something that some of us probably thought, that idea that if you don't do much for a torus fracture, they're probably going to get better anyway. But Simon, take us through the details. Really nice, as you say, to see a randomised controlled trial in Lancet from emergency medicine stroke, paediatric orthopaedics. And 
a nice design. So this is children aged 4 to 15 years with a distal radius torus fracture. I don't know what you do with them before this trial came out, Ian, but I used to just put them in a splint and tell them they're going to get better. Um, but, you know, I still saw lots of people put them into plasters. I saw a lot of them brought back to things like Fracture Clinic. And what this trial basically did is said, well, right, right, we're either going to put it in a plaster or a splint, or we're just going to put a bandage on it and see what happens. And well, let's cut to the bottom line. It's fine, whatever you do. So you can treat whatever you want to do with these patients. Um, put something on which gives them comfort and support. Bandages are nice and cheap. They're dead easy. Dead easy to take on and take off. And you will be fine. And that's one of those lovely things, isn't it, where it, making it so much easier to look after children with these injuries. I'm sure there's many children who we never see. I'm guessing that I was a bit of a rough and tumble kid. I probably had a torus fracture or two and never turned up to a hospital with them. And I, I got better. My wrists are functioning. Let's just say that. Uh, so for my piano playing. And so, yeah, it's a good thing to see. It's always lovely where we can stop doing stuff. You were just talking about point of care testing and part of me died inside because I'm thinking, oh, if only we could just stop testing at all. But here we are just pulling back on that addition, addition, addition of extra stuff the whole time. And it's great to see the evidence because that gives people who want reassurance the okay to not do something. And I think right now, a lot of people are looking for that reassurance to not do things rather than the evidence for them to do things. And I do see that in emergency medicine all the time. And just on that point, Ian, one of the things that was brought out by one of my colleagues um, just a couple of weeks ago, one of my trainee colleagues, is that by doing less, that's also health is a really bad polluter. We're a big impact on, on climate um, change and, and issues. And actually doing less is one of the ways that we can support that through the health service. So doing fewer tests, tests are actually quite a bad thing in terms of climate problems. Doing fewer things, doing fewer bits and pieces is also an environmentally friendly thing to do, which I thought was a good driver for this. I'm really hoping that over the next few years, we can have a focus on doing less for more. We've got so many people coming to the emergency department now, many of whom never would have come to us, but they get the same treadmill of tests that we give to everybody, which we gave 10 years ago. And I think we've just got to pull back. number of people I see with troponins, which I think is a great test in the right hands. Same with D-dimer, a great test in the right hands, but they're getting them done. And it's we just have to take responsibility, don't we? That as clinicians with years of training, we're as good sometimes as a little bottle with an orange top on. Sometimes the orange bottle overscores years of experience, and I, f I find that sad. Our final study to talk about this month, Simon, is the exit study. So this is about taking people out of a car and how we remove them. Now, with your air ambulance experience and more pre-hospital work, you'll have seen this a lot, Simon. I've seen it a lot. The fire brigade with their jaws of life coming in to take the roofs off cars so we can take people out of, out of their vehicles. Hopefully, that's something we can move away from. Well, I think so, yeah. It's a great paper actually by Tim Nutbeam and colleagues. Yeah, it's a great paper by Tim Nutbeam and colleagues looking at the evidence and then getting consensus opinions about how we actually get people out of vehicles. Because the sort of the old thinking was that all forms of spinal movement should be kept to an absolute minimum when you're removing people from a vehicle. And what we now know from the research is that what we thought was keeping it to an absolute minimum often results in similar or even worse spinal movements than actually asking a patient to come out of their own accord. And we've covered some of those papers on the blog over the years. But what this paper has done is it's recognised that the science isn't perfect. So they've combined that in a, in a sort of a sort of a Delphi study model to get a whole bunch of experts to come to a consensus, which I think is really helpful because it means that you or I at the scene can then advocate what they're suggesting. And we've got a body of evidence from a range of experts with far more experience than you or me in to, to back us up. So big things are basically if you can self-extricate, 
get the patient to self-extricate. And the rules for that are, can they follow instructions? Can they stand on one leg? Basically, that's the big takeaway that I've got from this um, study. The second is that self-extrication definitely results in less movement to the spinal column than if you try and cut the roof off and drag somebody up a spinal board. And we also know from this sort of study that spinal column injury is not that uncommon, but spinal cord injury is quite rare. And that idea that you would have at scene somebody who's got a spinal column injury, which has not yet affected the cord, but then by asking someone to self-extricate, they would then knock their cord off, just doesn't make pathophysiological sense really. And therefore you're almost certainly in a safe and sensible place to be. Oh, the other thing, the last thing, which is a philosophical thing is that if you put spinal column immobilization as your most important thing, you are by definition, therefore also downgrading the importance of the other injuries which that patient has. And patients who are at severe risk of spinal injury, or sorry, patients who've had a significant mechanism of injury, they're more likely to die of the injuries which you are hanging around waiting to do stuff, such as, you know, their tension pneumothorax, their bleeding to death, their blood loss, their fractured pelvis, etc., than you would be if you just get them out. So you've got to be sensible about this sort of thing. But this this is good, really good stuff, and a um, really great bunch of authors putting it together. And yeah, not dissimilar to that idea of immobilising wrists in, in the torus fractures, here we are trying to do less. And yeah, a definite shout out to the authors, which include Rob Fenwick, who is part of the fabulous team who do the resource room, Simon Lang. Uh, great stuff there. I'm sure you've all heard it, but they're doing fabulous work and do give them a listen. And great to see some of their work being published here as part of this Delphi study. Of course, Tim Nutbeam has been a friend of the podcast for a long time. And Mark Wilson's on there too. Lots of people who are at the forefront of these sorts of thoughts. And I will certainly be taking this back to my pre-hospital service with the aid of hopefully cutting cars off No, cutting roofs off fewer cars. And then finally, Simon, a bit of a talk about research in general, the James Lynn partnership. We talked about this before, but here we are refreshing it again. You're quite involved with all of this stuff. Tell us about the James Lynn partnership. Yeah, so the James Lynn um, Alliance is a organisation which helps set priorities for research. And the key thing about it, it takes experts, it takes clinicians and it takes patients, puts them together and identifies what are the most important things in our specialty. And the reason why it's important is because People like the NIHR, National Institute for Health Healthcare Research, look at this and that makes it much easier for us to get funding for the projects which come out as scoring high on the JLA. So on the website, there is a link to the prioritisation survey. We need your opinions on the questions which have come out so far um, and you need to score them. That's really important. It does make a big difference. And this is a refresher. The first set of uh, studies which went through which is uh, about three, three, four years ago, pretty much everything on that list has now been funded in some way, shape or form. So this is a way of really driving what's important to our specialty and how we can make good quality trials happen so that we see more emergency medicine and high quality trials published in things like The Lancet and other high quality journals like the EMJ. And it also gives more opportunity for more people to get involved in research. And there we have our portfolio career link and all of those things. It comes back to the same stuff. The more we can do, to take us into the realms beyond the shop floor, the better. And this is your chance to get involved. And talking of getting involved, Simon, we're about to hit a new term at the Royal College of Emergency Medicine. It's probably worth, I think, the phrase that the young people use is giving a shout out to the new team, uh, to Adrian and, and the new vice presidents. They've got a lot on their plate, but it was great to see them full of enthusiasm and excitement on Twitter just recently as they confirmed and accepted their posts. They will all start in the next term, which happens after the academic conference again, which is something to look out for, which you may want to 
think about going to and booking into. And Simon, just before we go, we should mention one little project that we've got on on the go here at St. Emlyn's. People might want to save the date for something next year. Yes. So 8th to 10th of June next year, we're going to be doing something rather special. Um, It will be a conference of sorts, but it won't be like anything else that most people have seen. Uh, We will be going to a rural location and we will be doing a lot of very interesting things. More details are going to come through forward, but 8th to 10th of June next year, it's going to be different. And if you want a bit of a clue, we've probably taken a lot of inspiration from our colleagues in South Africa. For those of people who went to things like the Bad EM conference back in 2018, uh, which was an absolutely spectacular place, had a bit of an epiphany there for many different reasons. Uh, we're going to take a bit of inspiration from them and do something similar but different. You can tell Simon's excited about this because before we recorded the podcast and thought about what to say, we said, oh, Simon, let's just drip feed it. Let's just tell, save the date. But oh, no, couldn't help himself, could he? Had to tell you a bit about it. 8th to the 10th of June next year, up in the Northwest, something quite exciting, something that I think will really suit the mindset of emergency physicians, designed specifically for people like you, uh, nurses, doctors, medical students, anybody who's interested in emergency medicine, put that date in your calendar. We're doing our rotor requests at the moment. So think about popping some leave in 8th to 10th of June next year. And we can promise you something rather special and might just be the thing you need to reinvigorate you after what could be an interesting and perhaps tricky winter. Simon, that's our summer-ish of June and July. There's still more to go. Autumn uh, is around the corner, but we have a whole August to look forward to. I'm about to go away on holiday. I can't wait. First time going abroad for many, many months uh, to the sunny climes of Italy. Uh, And just really looking forward to it. And I hope others of you are getting a chance to get away. And then we'll almost be back to the start of term again in September, that fresh start that I have to say I quite enjoy. Yeah, we've got a lot to look forward to. We've got a few challenges ahead, but we've got a lot to look forward to as well. Thanks again for listening to the St. Emelins podcast. Do, as we always say, like, subscribe, rate, review. I don't know. Send a carrier pigeon. Tell people you like it. And hopefully we're bringing you content that you enjoy. There's a lot more down the line. We've got some other interesting plans and exciting plans for the year ahead. Just generally, though, please take care of yourselves and enjoy your emergency medicine.